Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for December 7th through the 13th. And this week we will be discussing Moroni chapters 7 through 9. No new updates on Hong Kong. We remain in lockdown, as does everywhere else in the world. But it is December, and it's the Christmas season. And one of the nice things about living in Hong Kong is you actually get to hear Christmas music in public spaces, uh, in the public transportation and different public areas. They, they actually play Christmas music, even Christmas that mention, music that mentions the Savior, which is uh, a nice experience. They're not so worried about offending people uh, out here. So... Uh, but I uh, hope everyone is gearing up for Christmas. And uh, it's exciting that we're winding up uh, our study together of the Book of Mormon. Hard to believe that we've already had so many lessons. And this is, of course, our second to last lesson in the Book of Mormon. And for those of you that have been uh, staying with me, whether or not you're new to this channel or you've been here the whole time, I, uh, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you've been watching and I hope you've, uh, you've gotten something out of it. Well, with this week's lesson, uh, we'll be discussing some interesting interactions between Moroni and his father, Mormon. Uh, most of today's lessons actually, the content actually comes uh, pretty much all from Mormon. Uh, chapter 7 is a sermon that uh, Mormon gave and that Moroni recorded or remembered his father to have given. Uh, we, we don't know all of the details. And look, I mean, reality is this probably isn't exactly a you know, verbatim uh, recitation of Mormon's sermon. This is probably something, you know, years later that Moroni added in, just different ideas that he remembered from uh, his father uh, and his father's teaching. Uh, you, you really get the sense from these few chapters that Moroni and Mormon, at least during their times of peace, uh, were they were called to minister? They were uh, they were religious leaders within their community. That's what their their assignments were. Uh, chapter seven is a again a sermon that Mormon must have given uh, while he was teaching, or similar to the sermons that he gave. Uh, and then chapters uh, eight and nine are letters from Mormon to his son Moroni. Uh, eight, interestingly, is one given when Moroni is newly called. Uh, to the ministry, newly called to be a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so interesting to to think of these great men. We often, you know, all of their the paintings that we have of them depict them as war heroes and these giant burly men, uh, you know, fighting against the Lamanites. Um, but but in here we we only really see them here in their capacity as as preachers, as as teachers of the gospel. Of course, we don't know the, the circumstances under which they taught. Um, we, we know Mor Mormon must have been te was teaching in a synagogue. Uh, that's what uh, the word that, uh, the translated word that we have in chapter 7. They, they had their special places that were dedicated to uh, assembling together as a church. And while there, uh, Mormon was a teacher. And that's what we get in 
chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is very rich uh, and very deep. And so in order to understand it, we are actually going to read a lot uh, of uh, the words that, uh, that we have in the chapter itself. And then we'll try to put them together in a, in a fluid uh, lecture, trying to understand what it is exactly uh, that Mormon was trying to teach us, or that Moroni recorded uh, Mormon is having trying to taught. So this is kind of a, a dual lesson. It's uh, coming from Moroni's pen. Moroni's the one writing it down as he recollects what his father said. So uh, it's essentially the, the testimony of both men. But we begin in verse 3, uh, is, is that in chapter 7, is that sets off who it is exactly that, uh, that the lesson is being delivered to. Verse 3, Wherefore I would speak unto you that are of the church, that are the peaceable followers of Christ, and that have obtained a sufficient hope by which ye enter, ye can enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. So Mormon sets the stage here. He is speaking to the members of the church, the peaceable followers of Christ, who've obtained a sufficient hope by which they can enter into the rest of the Lord. And the definition that I like for the rest of the Lord, this idea, comes from Joseph F. Smith, where he says, What does it mean to enter into the rest of the Lord? Speaking for myself, it means that through the love of God, I have been won over to him so that I can feel at rest in Christ, that I may no more be disturbed by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and craftiness of men, whereby they lie and wait to deceive, and that I am established in the knowledge and testimony of Jesus Christ, so that no power can turn me aside from the straight and narrow path that leads back into the presence of God, to enjoy exaltation in his glorious kingdom, that from this time henceforth I shall enjoy that rest, until I shall rest with him in the heavens. So from President Smith here, we get this idea that it's, 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 it's not the same as having your calling and election made sure, but it's a mental determination, a decision that you have made in which you have decided you are going to follow Jesus Christ. And you're no longer out there searching around for different doctrines. That doesn't mean you're, you're brainwashed and you don't think about things. But in each instance in which it comes to, you know, do I take my understanding of the, of the world and, and the lens looking through the gospel of Jesus Christ, or do I try to find some other framework through which I understand this problem or uh, the, the way in which the world works? In, in this case, according to President Smith, if you've entered into the rest of the Lord, that means that in each case you have made the determination that you are going to follow Christ, that you are going to have faith in him and faith in his gospel. And so that's who Mormon's talking to. He's talking to those who have already determined that they will follow Jesus Christ and they will continue to follow Jesus Christ. They're not, they're not investigators here. They are uh, the, the faithful and devoted uh, followers of Christ. Verses 4 through 7. And now, my brethren, I judge these things of you because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. For I remember the word of God, which saith, By their works ye shall know them. For if their works be good, then they are good also. For behold, God hath said, A man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. For behold, it is not counted unto him for righteousness. So, if, so you know if someone is good by their works. And Mormons here is saying, look, I, I see your works and I see that they are good. 
But Mormon also goes a little further here and tells us that essentially our works are only as good uh, as our intentions. That's verse 6. Except ye shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. So in order to be a true follower of Christ, not only do we keep the commandments of Christ, but we do so with real intent. We don't do so for personal gain. We don't do so because it's part of the culture. We don't do so in an attempt to try to impress other people with our righteousness. We do good because that's what Christ wants us to do. And because we have faith in Jesus Christ, and we have faith that if we keep his commandments, then we will be able to return to the presence of our heavenly parents. That is our expectation. That is the reason, the motivation behind what we do. We do good for the intent to do good. And Mormon tells us, if you do good, but with the wrong intent, then it profiteth you nothing. It is not to your benefit. It doesn't help you at all. You might as well not have even done it. We go on to verse 9. And likewise, also is it counted evil unto man, if he shall pray and not with real intent of heart. Yea, and it profiteth him nothing, for God receiveth none such. So again, Mormons doubling down on this idea that not only do you do good, do good works, but do good works with good intentions, with good intent. So you do good, good works. And there are bad good works. You can do good works, but with a bad intention. And this is really important, a very critical concept as we go through uh, this chapter and try to understand exactly what it is uh, that Mormon and Moroni uh, are both teaching us. But this is, as we lay the, found, the, the framework to try to understand this, this, this idea of intention is, is crucial. We have to be doing the right thing for the right intent. Uh, verses 12 through 13. Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth against him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to sin, and to do that which is evil continually. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good, and to love God, and to serve him, is inspired of God. So we have this very clear demarcation here. Just as earlier we had the difference between good and evil, largely has to do with our intent, the reason for which we are doing them. Uh, We're now clearly told that anything that inviteth you to do good, so anytime you're doing good for the right intention, that motivation is inspired. That motivation is godly. It comes from God. And if you have the intention to do good, but for the wrong reasons, or you don't have the intention to do good, but to do bad, then that comes from, let's just say, a different source. That comes from evil. That comes from uh, the source they call call the devil. Um, Because he's an enemy to God, and he fights against God, trying to convince us to do other than the right thing for the right purpose. But God inviteth and enticeth. Uh, Lots of us in there. Uh, Inviteth and enticeth us to do good continually. They always want us to do good. And so as we seek to follow God, 
our goal should be to always do good, to always do that which is right. Now, another ramification from these verses is that it doesn't say that you can only do good within the context of the church. It definitely does not say that. But as we read, as we look at verse uh, 13, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. I think so often we as Latter-day Saints get in this mentality that uh, we have a monopoly on on inspiration, uh, which is certainly not true. Many, many people out there try to do good, try to love God, and try to serve God. Uh, Sometimes the way they do it are obviously very different, sometimes perhaps even contradictory to what we as Latter-day Saints believe uh, is, is, is serving God. But remember, Moroni, Mormon here is talking about the importance of our intentions. So anyone who has the intention, who does a thing for the right intention, and as long as those intentions are to love God and to serve God, that's inspired of God. And we need to make sure that we are not uh, critical of the motives of other people both within the church and without, and outside of the church. I think that's something that's very important that comes across in these few verses. Because if you recall, one of the, one of the problems that uh, Moroni's and, and Mormon's church confronted in uh, the Book of Mormon as they fell apart was, you know, like so many before them, they fell, they fell into pride. They were, uh, you know, wearing costly apparel. They were look, looking down upon others. They might have been going to church, might have been going to their meetings, they might have been making generous contributions, but they were doing it not because of the love of God. They were doing it for pride. They were doing it other for reasons other than good intent. And according to Mormon and Moroni, when you do something other than with the intent to serve God and to love God, that's not counted as righteousness to you. And so They had the situation where they were in the church, but they were not doing good in the church. Many of them were struggling with their motives, with their intentions, with pride. And that's something that we all confront. And it's worth constantly asking ourselves as we do things, as we do good things, why are we doing them? Are we doing them because we want other people to see them? We want other people to think that we're so good and so righteous? Or do we do them because we love God and we want to serve God and we want to serve others? And Mormon is clear, if it's not the latter, if it's not for the love of God, it is not counted to us as righteousness. Verses 14 through 16. Wherefore, take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. For behold, my brethren, it is given unto you to judge, that ye may know good from evil. And the way to judge is as plain, that ye may know with a perfect knowledge, as the daylight is from the dark night. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given unto every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore I show unto you the way to judge, for everything which inviteth to do good, and persuade to believe in Christ, is sent forth by the power and the gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge, it is of God." 
So we have this the standard here that Mormon gives uh, to the followers of Christ, to the Christians, to us. He says, uh, if anything invites you and persuades you to believe in Christ, then it comes from the gift of Christ and it, you can know that it is of God. Everything that is good invites us to believe and leads us towards Jesus Christ. And that should be our standard in everything we do. As we minister to others, as we prepare and teach lessons, as we partake of the sacrament, as we serve others, everything that we do that we, I guess you can say, hope to get brownie points for, hope that it counts uh, for us as righteousness, every righteous thing that we do, is it leading us to Christ? Are our intentions of the sort that by engaging in this activity, we draw closer to Christ? Or like the Nephites, do we do it for purposes of pride, trying to get gain of some sort, uh, trying to build connections, trying to look good in other people's eyes? Uh, this is, again, one would assume that the reason Moroni is sharing this with us is because it's important. As we talked about last week, this is, you know, a good righteous man who watched his nation, who watched his people get destroyed. They were not able to save themselves. Moroni, again, as I read these, I really feel that Moroni is so heartbroken. He, he feels like a failure, like he wasn't able to reach his people. He wasn't able to give them the help that they needed. And what was the help that they needed? Well, certainly this chapter is a big part of that. One would imagine that the reason he's recording it is because his people failed in this aspect and he's giving it to us as a warning saying, watch yourself. Make sure you do things for the right intent. Don't get caught up in pride. We all have the light of Christ within us. Let that be your guide. Do things that bring you closer to that light, that strengthen and increase that light. Don't be full of negativity. Don't always be uh, questioning uh, other people and their intentions. As, as we read these verses and he's giving us this, this, uh, this rubric on which we can judge good from bad, I don't think he's doing it for the purpose of saying, all right, now that you know, go and start judging other people and, and guessing what their intentions are. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's saying, you have the light of Christ to check your own intentions. You worry about yourself and what you're doing. Worry about your own intentions. Don't you dare go starting to guess the, other in guess the intentions of other people because that's when pride sets in because you're comparing your intentions, which you can know, against other people's intentions, which are almost impossible to know. So I just picture Moroni just crying to us, guys, check your pride, worry about your own intentions, and don't worry about others around you. Uh, verse 18, where this message is repeated. And now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that ye do not judge wrongfully. For with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. So we can't judge others unless we know their intentions. And remember at the very beginning, that's what Mormon taught was the difference between good and evil. It's your intentions. 
So since we cannot know other people's intentions, uh, we need to be charitable in our judgments of them. We need to not judge them, really, because we don't know what their intentions are. So if we judge others, and this is what I'm telling us here, if we judge others by assuming we know their intentions, especially if we assume that it's bad intentions, then it's fair if God judges us, assuming that we have bad intentions. That's not to say that's how he's going to do it, but it's certainly fair that he would do so. And so we need to be very, very careful because just as we hope that God would give us, will give us the benefit of the doubt when it comes to judging us and our intentions and the reason that we did things, we need to apply that same standard, that same standard of grace and mercy and willingness to forgive and charity towards other people. Because we, even though God knows our intentions, we certainly do not know other people's intentions. So we need to be very, very careful. Verses 19 through 21. Wherefore I beseech you, brethren, that ye should search diligently in the light of Christ, that ye may know good from evil. And if ye will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, ye certainly will be a child of Christ. And now, my brethren, how is it possible that ye can lay hold upon every good thing? And now I come to that faith of which I said I would speak, and I will tell you the way whereby ye may lay hold on every good thing. So this is our, our goal. How do we lay hold on every good thing? How do we make it so that everything that we do that we want to be good, every good act that is ours is counted for righteousness? All the good that we try to do in the world, how do we lay hold on that and make it count and make it meaningful so that it helps us grow and improve? And again, this is not for the purpose of trying to score brownie points. It's not like there's some giant ledger up there where it says, oh, uh, Ben did a good thing, but for bad intentions. We'll put one in the negative column. Oh, looks like he did a good one there. And he had the right intentions. Yay, we'll put a a check in the positive column. I, I don't think that's the way it works. We have to do good for good intentions because when we do good for good intentions, we draw closer to Christ. We improve. We grow personally. We learn of Christ. We learn his mindset. We come to understand him and our heavenly parents. And that's why we do things for good intention because only when we do it that way does it draw us closer to Christ. If we do good for bad purposes, if we let our pride dictate the reasons that we do good, even good things, sure, we've done good things, but there's no growth in that. There's no personal progress in there. It doesn't help us come closer to Jesus Christ and understand him better. When we do things to show off for other people, our reward is that we've shown off for other people. Our reward is that other people might think highly of us. That's, I guess that's nice. If that's what your intention was, that's what you're going to get. But what you're not going to get is the personal growth and the, the personal benefits and improvement and the purification that could come from doing good for good purposes. That manifestation and confirmation that comes from the Holy Ghost through the light of Christ to purify us and make us better. That only comes as we do what is right with the right intention. 
And so that's what Moroni is going to, that's what Mormon is going to tell us now. How do we lay hold on every good thing? How do we make those good things that we are trying to do actually mean something and help us to grow and to progress? Uh, Verse 24. And behold, there were diverse ways that he did manifest things unto the children of men, which were good. And all things which are good cometh of Christ. Otherwise men were fallen and there could no good thing come unto them. Because of Jesus Christ, because of the coming of Jesus Christ and because of his atonement, it is possible for us to do good. So step one in making good things count for good. Step one in making it so that the good that we do actually helps us improve and become better people is to recognize that without Christ, it would be impossible to do good things because we are fallen. And without uh, Christ providing his grace and his mercy through his atonement, it would be impossible for us to do any good things. There would be no good things without him. Uh, So that is a, a critical realization in step one. If we want to do right, and make it count for right, make it actually make us better, then step one has to be, we recognize our dependency on Christ and how absolutely critical he is in this plan of salvation. Verses 27 through 28. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of God to claim of the Father his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men, for he hath answered the ends of the law, and he claimeth all those who have faith in him, and they who have faith in him will cleave unto every good thing. Wherefore he advocateth the cause of the children the cause of the children of men, and he dwelleth eternally in the heavens. So have miracles ceased? We talked about this before. What is the greatest miracle? The greatest miracle is that God, our Heavenly Father, is able to take you and me, these insufferable beings who uh, are immature, are weak, don't know anything. He's able to take us and make us better. He's able to take us and help us to grow and help us eventually to become like him. That is the greatest miracle. We can be forgiven of our sins and return to the presence of God. Has that miracle ceased? Of course it has not. Christ came. Christ atoned for our sins. And because of that atonement, it is possible that we can lay hold of every good thing. That the good that we do, the, the, the commandments that we keep, the righteous efforts that we put forward, when done for the right intent because of Jesus Christ, those good, that good can miraculously help us improve, help us to become better, grow day by day on our journey back towards uh, the, our Father and our Mother in Heaven. Now, once Christ has come and he answered the ends of the laws, and so he claims all those who have faith in him. If we have faith in Jesus Christ and we select him, we sign up for his team, we choose to be a part of what he is a part of, then it becomes possible for us to cleave unto every good thing, to to stick to it, for it to count 
as something for us. All of the good things out there, all of the good that we try to do, even if it's misunderstood by those around us, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because he has claim on us, those well-intended things, even if they, they went wrong, uh, they still count for good to us. We can cleave unto them. We are bound together with them. And of course, this is a concept of atonement. We're two things that are separated. In this case, our actions and our intentions can be cleaved together, can be brought together in one as an atonement, an at-one-ment. And that, of course, is only possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And he is up there, he's advocating the cause of the children of men. Uh, to me, that's a powerful word, perhaps because I'm a lawyer and my job is to be an advocate on behalf of my, of my clients. But he is up there arguing on our behalf, pleading for us, pleading with us, encouraging us, uh, pleading in front of others, arguing our case, making the case that, you know, yeah, Ben made a bunch of mistakes, but his intentions were good. He tried to do the best he could. And he has faith in me. He is mine. He has entered covenants with, into covenants with me. And as it says in verse 28, I, Jesus Christ, claim him. He is mine. And so because I claim him, his good works done with good intentions can cleave to him, can stay with him, can count to his benefit, can make it so he actually progresses and improves and eventually is able to return to the presence of heavenly parents and become like them. That is what Jesus Christ does for us. So step one is recognizing that without Christ, we could not do anything righteous. And then step two is recognizing that when we have faith in Christ, and it is only because we have that faith in Christ, that our good works, that he pleads on our behalf that our good works can stick to us in a process of atonement where we can become one with our good intentions through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Verses 31 and 32. And the office of their ministry is to call men unto repentance and to fulfill and to do the work of the covenants of the Father, which he hath made unto the children of men to prepare the way among the children of men by declaring the word of Christ unto the chosen vessels of the Lord, that they may bear testimony of him. And by so doing, the Lord God prepareth the way that the residue of men may have faith in Christ, that the Holy Ghost may have place in their hearts, according to the power thereof. And after this manner, bringeth to pass the Father the covenants which he hath made unto the children of men." The question now then is, how do we have that faith in Jesus Christ? If we know that it is through faith in Christ that our good works can actually mean something, that we can actually improve and progress and prepare to return to the presence of God, how is it that we can develop that faith in him? Well, Mormon here teaches us this pattern that uh, the Lord prepares a way by first he calls, he calls us unto repentance. First, he calls people uh, 
to the office of their ministry. He calls teachers. He gives them testimony. He gives them witnesses. And then they go and they share that testimony. They share that witness with those around them. And as they do so, others will hear that testimony. And this is verse 32. And the Holy Ghost has place within their hearts. The Holy Ghost testifies that what they are hearing is true. And then through that, they enter into covenants and they prepare themselves to return to the presence of God. An essential pattern, one that we're all familiar with, but I think one that we probably take for granted about how miraculous it is that you and I can be a part of this process in blessing the lives of other people. And of course, it will be counted us to us for good if we do it for the right intent, just like everything else. As we share our testimony with others, as we encourage others to have faith in Christ and to repent, and as we teach them of the gospel, teach them of the commandments and the importance of covenants, are we doing so with the right intent? Do we do so out of love of God and because we love them and we want them to prepare to return to the presence of the Father? Or are we doing so uh, for some other reason, for some other uh, reward that we have in mind? Always so critical to make sure we are doing the right things uh, for the right purposes. Uh, verses 33 and 34. And Christ hath said, If ye will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. And he hath said, Repent all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me, and be baptized in my name, and have faith in me, that ye may be saved. So Christ gives us, he encourages us, he's there on the way, uh, on the sidelines, motivating us, telling us, Come on, you can do this. Have faith in me. And then you can do whatever it is that I ask you to do. And what is it that I ask you to do? I ask you to repent and be baptized in my name and have faith in me. Keep my commandments and you will make it. So again, this is the pattern that God has given to us so that everyone can have the chance to hear the message of Jesus Christ and decide within themselves, is this the message that they want to pattern their lives off of? Is this the framework that they are going to use to build their lives? And that's the pattern that he gives. He, he gives individuals witness. He gives us testimony of that. And then we are to share that with others so that everyone has the chance to repent and come unto Christ and enter into covenants with him. We now skip to verses 40 through 42. And again, my beloved brethren, I would speak unto you concerning hope. How is it that ye can obtain unto faith, save ye shall have hope? And what is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal. And this because of your faith in him, according to the promise. Wherefore, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope for without faith, there cannot be hope. So we see this intricate relation between faith and hope. And we spoke about it uh, a few weeks ago uh, when we were discussing Ether 12. Uh, Moroni really seems to like this idea of, of faith and hope and how they interact with each other. And so Moroni says, how is it, how can you have this faith in Jesus Christ? 
What is it that motivates you to do good for the right purposes so that you can, to propel you, to motivate you and to move you uh, back to, uh, on the path back to the presence of God? Well, he says it's, it's a hope. Verse 18, how can you obtain this faith? Save you shall have hope. And what is it you hope for? As we talked about earlier, hope is trusting that the destination is actually there. And faith is trusting that the map that you're following will actually get you to the destination that you're trying to go to. So he says in verse 41, you shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal. What do we hope for? We hope for eternal life. We hope to return to the presence of our heavenly parents there to enter into their rest and to continue to progress and to become like them. That is what we hope for. And of course, that is carried out through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection. That is the only way we will ever get to that destination, through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection. Otherwise, we are without hope. Otherwise, we have no way of getting to that destination. Otherwise, that destination does not exist for us except for Jesus Christ. So how do we develop that faith? By understanding where it is that we're going, by understanding our true potential, by understanding our relationship with our heavenly parents, that we are their children. They created us in their image and we have the potential to become like them. Once we have that message of hope, once we understand that is our potential and our eventual destiny, if we will elect to keep the commandments and trust in Jesus Christ, then the question becomes, okay, how do I get there? And for that, the answer is through the atonement of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We have faith in Jesus Christ. We trust that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life that will lead us back to the presence of God. So we have verse 42 then, where it says, if a man have faith, he must needs have hope. For without faith, you cannot have hope. So verse 40 says, uh, you, how, uh, let's see, how can you have faith unless you have hope? And here it says, it, it repeats it in verse 42. Without faith, there cannot be any hope. So the two play off of each other. Without hope, there's no faith. Without faith, there's no hope. You need both of them. You need both the destination and the means to get to that destination. Otherwise, this is all meaningless. Otherwise, you cannot enter into the rest of Christ. Otherwise, you have to be going and looking for a different life philosophy. And you cannot enjoy that rest that we talked about with that, that when I quoted Joseph F. Smith, that full commitment to Jesus Christ, knowing that this is the direction that your life is heading, knowing that the presence of God is my destination. That is where I am going to go. That is where I want to be. And I trust that Jesus Christ is the path to get back to them. I have that hope that I might knowledge as to where the destination is going to be. And I have faith as to how I can get there. Uh, verses 43 through 44. And again, behold, I say unto you that he cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. 
If so, his faith and hope is vain. For none is acceptable before God, save the meek and lowly in heart. And if a man be meek and lowly in heart, and confess by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity. For if he have not charity, he is nothing. Wherefore, he must needs have charity. So we receive the third leg of this stool now, charity. It says, if a man be meek and lowly of heart and confess by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity. Charity is, again, the third leg of our stool with faith and hope that makes it possible, that forms the foundation, the outline of our plan of salvation so that we know where we're going, we know how to get there, and then we add charity if you know, if we're sticking with my analogy, which I, I think works, where faith, is, hope is the destination, faith is the map. Charity, I think of as being the fuel that allows us to move forward. Because remember, we talked about earlier, if we do, if we do, even if we do the right thing, but with the wrong intentions, we're not progressing. We're not moving forward. It's not counted to us for righteousness. And that's what charity is. Charity is that good intention. It's doing the right thing for the right reason. So I like to think of charity as the fuel that allows us to move forward. Because even if you know where you want to go, and even if you know how to get there, if you don't have any fuel, you're, you're out of luck. You're not going to move anywhere. And that's what charity is. It allows us to progress and to move forward forward in the right direction on the way back to our eventual destination. For if he have not charity, he is nothing. Wherefore, he must needs have charity. Without that charity, we are not going anywhere. So we have to have charity. Verses 46 and 47. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. It's, he doesn't mince words here. And of course, the, the wording here is almost identical to, uh, to, to uh, what, what Paul said in Corinthians in chapter 13. If you don't have charity, you're nothing. You're not going anywhere. Your good works don't count if they lack charity. You can do the right thing, but if you do it without charity, it's not going to help you progress. It's not going to make you better. It's not going to move you in the direction of the destination you want to go to. Even if you know where you want to go, even if you have the right map, you need charity. And what is charity? It's the pure love of Christ. It's the Christ it's the love that Christ has. So when, when we do anything, anything, any good works, any works for which we hope to progress, and hopefully we're doing those all the time. If we do anything, it has to be with the love of Christ inside of us. That has to be our motivating factor. If we're ministering to other people, we don't want to do it because we, our elders quorum president is chasing us or because uh, we want everyone to, to know how good we are. We do it because we love the person that we're ministering to. If you prepare a lesson, you don't do it because 
you're afraid you'll get in trouble if you don't or because you hope other people will think you're smart and wonderful. You do it because you love Jesus Christ and you want other people to draw unto him. Everything we do must be motivated by our love for the Savior. And we must do everything with the same love that he has. Now that's an incredibly lofty goal because he gave his life for us. He lived a perfect life. He did everything for the right purposes. And what were those purposes? It was because he loved his father and because he loved us. And so he always sought to do the will of the father. And that's what we need to go for. That should be our target. That should be our motivation, doing what God wants us to do because we love God and we love those around us. And the promise is as we do that, it will count for righteousness to us. It will help us to progress. It will change us. It will make us better. It will make us the people that God intends us to become. But if we lack that, it won't have that effect. So you'll often hear people outside of the church say, oh, I don't need religion. I can be a good person. I can do good without religion. You can, but its effect on you is going to be limited. It's not going to have the effect of changing you into your full potential, helping you reach that potential, helping you to become like your heavenly parents. Of course, doing good is better than not doing good. There's no doubt about that. But if you want to reach your full potential, you have to do the right thing for the right reason. And the reason for that must be our love of God, the love that Christ has for us and for everyone. Our intention must be charity. Uh, verse 48. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. Mormon tells us that we need to pray for this charity. And it's interesting because that must mean it doesn't come naturally. That must mean it must be something that's hard to attain because we should be praying for it. That we should be praying with all the energy of our heart. This is going to be work to have that charity. It's not just, it's not something that just naturally comes to us but it's something that we need to pray for. And not just a simple prayer, pray with all the energy of our heart, which is a beautiful concept. Pray that we will be filled with this love. And the promise is that he bestows it upon all who are the true followers of Christ. So I hope that we understand that that has to be our motivating factor. If we are to progress back to the presence of our heavenly parents, we have to hear the message. We hear it from God's messengers. The Holy Ghost touches us. We realize that we need Jesus Christ and we can't progress. We can't do anything without him. 
Then we enter into covenants with him and we pray to him that he will fill us with charity. He will give us this blessing and then we have to act. We have to act. We have to do the right thing for the right purposes. And the promise is as we do so, we will prepare ourselves to return to the presence of God. And that is chapter 7. It's a beautiful chapter. Uh, such, such profound doctrine. And the way it's put together can be hard to understand, but hopefully that's how I understand it. I hope that's helpful to you. There's probably other ways to understand it. But uh, I understand it is a beautiful sermon on how we progress and how we prepare to return to the presence of God. Uh, chapter 8 is a letter from Mormon to Moroni. Again, Moroni has just been called to the ministry here. And so Mormon gives them this letter, um, probably during a moment of peace, because Mormon basically says, you know, I, I don't know when I'll have to uh, uh, end this and we'll be back to fighting the Lamanites, but it seems like we got a little peace for now, so I'm writing you this letter. Um, but in it, he, he strongly condemns uh, a practice that he calls as solemn mockery before God, and that is the practice of baptizing little, ch little children. Um, let's, uh, chapter 8, let's read verses 14 and 15. Behold, I say unto you that he that supposeth that little children need baptism is in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity, for he hath neither faith, hope, nor charity. Wherefore should he be cut off while in, while in the thought he must go down to hell? For awful is the wickedness to suppose that God saveth one child because of baptism, and the other must perish because he hath no baptism. So what do we take away from these verses? Well, one is that baptism doesn't save you. And if we believe that baptism by itself will save us, we're in the gall of bitterness and we're on our way to hell and we don't have faith, hope, or charity. And why is that? Because you're misunderstanding God. If you believe that one little child who is innocent was baptized, but another little child who also did no wrong was not baptized and therefore God will judge the two of them differently, you're totally missing the point if that's how you feel that God is. If you believe that God is this person that gave down this big long list and as long as you check every mark on the list, you're on your way back to his presence. No, you're, you're totally missing it. You're totally missing the point of the last chapter that we just read. It's all about charity. It's all about doing the right thing for the right purpose. And when you're a young child, you don't understand those purposes. It's impossible to do the right thing for the right purpose when you don't even know what that means. And so if you're so focused on the rituals that you're forgetting the whole charity concept, you're way off, says Mormon. You're missing the whole point, and you might as well not even believe in Jesus Christ. We are not a church. We do not preach a gospel of nothing but rituals providing us salvation. Are ordinances essential? Yes, that's why we do baptisms and other ordinances in the temple on behalf of those who didn't have the chance to receive them while they're here because they're essential. But if you think that is the basis upon which God will judge us, you're completely mistaken. God doesn't judge us based on how we were baptized, on whether or not we were baptized. Yes, we need to be baptized to enter into covenants with him and lay claim upon certain blessings. But ultimately, that's not the basis of our judgment. Our judgment is based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do, how well do we know him? How deeply do we love him? 
That is what ultimately provides salvation, not a few drops of water. Verse 20. And he that saith little children need baptism denieth the mercies of Christ and setteth at naught the atonement of him and the power of his redemption. Doubling down on this idea. If you say that those who are incapable of sinning need to be baptized, then you don't understand sin. Then you don't understand the atonement and you don't understand the purpose of baptism and you don't understand the plan of salvation. And if you don't understand the plan of salvation, how are you going to follow it? Again, as you said earlier, if, you're, if you have this mistaken view, you lack hope, you lack faith, and you lack charity. All three of those things are critical. And if you, but if you believe that young children incapable of sinning need baptism in order to be saved, you're missing the boat on all three. Verse 23 but it is mockery before God, denying the mercies of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit and putting trust in dead works. Uh, beautiful. We are not saved by dead works. We are saved by our relationship with Jesus Christ. Whether or not we are able to tap into his mercy, whether or not we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, because of our relationship with our Savior. Yes, baptism is essential, but not because the ritual itself means anything. It's the covenant that we make with Christ that is meaningful and that has salvific power. And if we don't understand that covenant, and if we're not willing to enter into that covenant, and if we don't fill that covenant with charity, with the love of Christ, it doesn't mean anything then it does not provide us any form of salvation. Verses 25 through 26. And the first fruits of repentance is baptism, and baptism cometh by faith unto the fulfilling of the commandments, and the fulfilling the commandments bringeth remission of sins. And the remission of sins bringeth meekness and lowliness of heart. And because of meekness and lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost, which comforter filleth with hope and perfect love, which love endureth by diligence unto prayer until the end shall come when all the saints shall dwell with God. I love these few verses because they so clearly explain the process that we all have to go through in order to prepare to enter into the return to the presence of God. Yes, it is necessary that uh, baptism and repentance, but those are just the first steps in verse 25. Those help to bring about the remission of sins. Those help to, uh, to justify us, if you will. But the purification part, that doesn't come through baptism. And that doesn't even come through repentance. That comes through meekness and lowliness of heart, which brings the Holy Ghost. And that fills us with hope and perfect love. And this is interesting. And that love endureth by diligence unto prayer. I'm not quite sure what that means. But prayer is an essential part of maintaining that charity. Maintaining that love which is so critical. That cleanses us and purifies us and prepares us to become like our heavenly parents. Until the end shall come when all the saints shall dwell with God. So the first part is faith and repentance. Those are necessary, but they're not sufficient. Those can justify us. They can get us in the door, 
but they don't change us. What changes us and truly prepares us is the Holy Ghost. It's doing the right thing for the right purpose with charity. As the Holy Ghost provides, it hits seal of approval. That Holy Spirit of promise that comes and justifies, sanctifying us. Giving its stamp of approval upon the good works that we do. That's what the Holy Ghost is intended to do. It comes and it purifies us. It changes us. Purifying our intentions, purifying our thoughts, purifying our actions and our motives, filling us with charity. Again, this charity is not something that comes simply. It doesn't just descend upon us because we've been baptized. It takes work. It takes prayer. It takes practice. It takes faith. It takes a lifetime of diligence. And it comes as a gift from God. It's not something that we do. It's given to us because of our relationship with God, because of the choices that we make and through his saving grace. So faith and repentance justify us, but is the Holy Ghost that sanctifies us and makes it so we can return to the presence of God. Chapter nine, then. A final letter from Mormon to Moroni. And interestingly, it's, he tells him of the terrible things that he's seeing. And I'm not exactly sure why Moroni included this one in here. Because there's some gruesome details in here. He saw some terrible things. Um, but uh, a few verses stand out. Uh, verses, verse 4 in chapter 9. Behold, I am laboring with them continually. And when I speak the word of God with sharpness, they tremble in anger against me. And when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore, I fear lest the spirit of the Lord hath ceased striving with them. It's worth asking ourselves, what is necessary in order to get you to repent? If a prophet, prophet or a missionary or a spouse or a friend or a parent, if someone comes and lovingly tries to get you to repent... Do you ignore them? Or if they try to use harsher tactics, do you harden your hearts? What is necessary to get through to you? You can see Mormon is so frustrated here because he doesn't know how to get through to his people. He sees their wickedness. It breaks his heart, but he doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, But he continues anyway, verse 6. And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. So even though Mormon knows that he's not getting through to them, even though he knows that their destruction is on its way because of the hardness of their hearts, because of their pride, because they're not doing what he told them they need to do in chapter 7, they're not doing the right thing for the right reason, but they're letting pride govern their lives. They're letting pride take over uh, their church, their spirituality, and their lives. But I, you know, I love the, the steadfastness of Mormon. It's, it's like, I, I know it's not working, but I got to do my part. I got to do the best that I can. 
because I love God and I know that's what he wants me to do. And I love these people and I'm not going to give up on them. I'm going to give them every opportunity that I can. And what a beautiful example Mormon is for each of us. And you know, I hope we can take that same example with those around us. Even if they're making bad decisions, bad choices, don't give up on them. You know, continue to preach to them. Because remember, that is the plan. That is the pattern that God gave us, that Moroni gave us in chapter 7. Is that those who have that testimony, share it with others and encourage them to repent. It's not a guarantee that it's going to work, but that is the pattern that has been given to us. And then in the following verses, uh, Mormon details some of the horrible things that he sees that the Nephites are doing. Uh, it involves rape and murder and cannibalism. Every wicked practice you can think of, they're engaging in it. And you, can, you, you know his heart is breaking as he writes these letters to his son, just out of pure frustration that his people will not do the, the simple act of coming unto Christ and repenting of their sins and loving those around them. Of course, it's not simple. Otherwise, everyone would do it. But it's so frustrating to, to Mormon because, because he does have that charity. And it's breaking his heart to see the mistakes they're making. But he ends with these verses, which I think are beautiful. My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death, and the showing his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God the Father whose throne is high in the heavens and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. Amen. So I love, what a, what a beautiful way to end. He says, my son, I love you. Don't let these things overwhelm you with grief. Don't let them destroy your hope. Pin your hope to Jesus Christ. Have faith in him. Move forward with charity. Even if you know what's going to happen, even if people reject you, do the right things for the right reason because you love God and because you love those around you. And the promise is certain that if you do that, you will return to the presence of your heavenly parents. And I hope that each of us in our own lives, as we evaluate wherever we might be at. And of course, we're in different places simultaneously on the path, really. We're, at one, we're, we're always in need of repentance, always in need of improving ourselves, always in need of finding those weaknesses and, and making them strengths. While at the same time, we're also called to help others and encourage others, to teach others, to help to build their faith in Jesus Christ. And even when they're not listening to our message, even when they make wrong decisions, we can't let that overwhelm us with sadness because our faith is in Christ. Because we know that through him we can cleave unto every good thing. That we have the ability to progress, to move forward along the path back to the presence of our heavenly parents, where we with them can enjoy eternal life through the grace, 
through the atonement and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I leave that testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.